The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Dr. Daryl Sartorius was a renowned surgeon dedicated to saving lives and healing the sick. So when he failed to respond to his emergency pages, his colleagues were understandably concerned. It just wasn't like the good doctor. He always answered his pages, no matter the hour. Something just wasn't right. As hours passed with still no sign of Dr. Sartorius, the hospital took a drastic step and called 911. They hoped police could perform a welfare check on the surgeon at his home to make sure everything was all right. But what they discovered was far from all right. In fact, it was a tragedy that would send shockwaves through the medical community and beyond. Join me now as we delve into the chilling and heart-wrenching story of one doctor's untimely demise. We'll uncover the sinister truth behind his death and the twisted tale of a femme fatale whose obsession with luxury and greed led to a trail of destruction in her wake. As you step foot inside the bustling halls of Bethesda North Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, you can't help but feel the intensity of life and death swirling around you. A world of controlled chaos where the lives of patients hang in the balance and every second matters. But in early 1996, the hospital had fallen eerily silent as Dr. Daryl Satorius made his way through the corridors. Everyone at the hospital knew the doctor. He was a surgical rock star, the kind of doctor who inspired confidence and commanded respect. But on that particular day, something was different. The usual swagger in the doctor's step had been replaced by a cautious gait, his stern expression replaced with one of apprehension, and the dark circle under his eyes hinted at the weight of his worries. But as he moved down the hallway of Bethesda North, it was something else that caught his colleague's attention. The light gleaming off a bulletproof vest strapped tightly to his chest. Nurses and doctors whispered to one another, wondering what could have caused such a shift in the unflappable surgeon. How could a man who stood over six feet tall that could intimidate an entire room of nurses and doctors into submission suddenly seem so vulnerable? Some of the staff had been aware Daryl had been struggling with his mental health in recent years. Rumors of suicidal thoughts and depression had been making the rounds around the hospital. But this was something different. This was fear, fear for his life. As Daryl entered the operating room, his colleagues watched him closely, wondering if he was in the right state of mind to perform the life-saving surgery. But their worries were soon put to rest as they watched him work with a precision and skill 
that seemed almost effortless. Finally, the surgery was over, and Daryl stepped away from the table, his expression relieved, but still haunted. It was clear he had more on his mind than just the success of a surgery. The case of Dr. Daryl Satorius is a true crime saga that first captured the nation's attention back in the 90s, and for good reason. It was a story of love, greed, and murder that left even the most seasoned journalists and authors spellbound. Among the many who found themselves captivated by this case was the highly esteemed true crime writer, investigative journalist, and TV personality, Aphrodite Jones, known for her knack for uncovering the most harrowing and engrossing details of a crime. Aphrodite was drawn to the twisted tale of Dr. Sartorius and the web of lies surrounding him. In her acclaimed book, Della's Web, Aphrodite delves deep into the story, pulling back the layers of deception and intrigue that make it such an unforgettable case. And today, we have the pleasure of hearing directly from Aphrodite herself as she joins us on her journey into the heart of one of the most captivating true crime stories ever told. Daryl Sartorius was an infamous thoracic and heart surgeon in Cincinnati. And the reason he was infamous, I use the word loosely, is because he was so tough. He was such a perfectionist. He was so great in the operating room. But he was also vile and angry to people around him. He talked down to staff. He talked down to nurses. If anyone made any kind of small error, he was all over it. And so he was known to be kind of a terror, but yet a genius. As a heart and lung surgeon, Dr. Daryl Sartorius had built a reputation as being one of the best in the field. With 25 years of practice under his belt, earning him a sizable annual salary of $300,000, a sum that afforded him a life of opulence and luxury. And if you took a good look at Daryl's life, it was evident he'd acquired a taste for the finer things. From the flashy cars he drove to the first-class flights he took with his wife and four children. But over the years, Dr. Sartorius had found himself facing a difficult situation. Despite his years of experience, new technological advancements and younger, better-trained surgeons were slowly overtaking him. His struggle to keep up was only further compounded by his less-than-stellar bedside manner and interpersonal skills. Over the years, Dr. Satoris's colleagues had started to find his impatience and anger issues increasingly difficult to tolerate, and over time, his patient referrals also began to dwindle. Unfortunately, the decline in his professional career wasn't the only challenge Dr. Satoris had been facing. At the same time, this is the kind of personality he had at home as well. He was a workaholic. He was not the type of guy who was warm and fuzzy in any way. His wife made up for that, Janet, by celebrating every holiday that you can imagine in a Martha Stewart kind of way. They spent a lot of time redoing that house, overdoing that house, frankly. It was like the most expensive house on a less expensive block. But that was all Daryl's way of compensating for the lack of emotion, the lack of time he spent with his family was to buy things, do more to the house, give more money to Janet to design this and that. I actually interviewed the designer. She said she never saw anybody spend so much money 
on uh, things that seemed to be unnecessary over the years. But that was, again, Daryl's way was to buy affection. But ultimately, the marriage dissolved uh, after many years. In 1994, Dr. Satorius and his wife Janet came to a decision that would alter the course of their lives forever. Their marriage was coming to an end, and the once blissful couple found themselves facing a new reality. For Daryl, the transition was especially difficult, struggling to come to terms with his new life, living alone in a cramped condo, a far cry from the spacious family home he was once accustomed to. To make matters worse, his children were no longer with him, living their own separate lives. The intense loneliness he felt left Daryl in a dark place, and he even contemplated suicide. He worried he'd never find love again, and that he'd be doomed to spend the rest of his life alone. But amidst the chaos and despair, a glimmer of hope appeared, a new love interest, bringing a ray of light to his bleak existence. Daryl found himself needing a partner, and being that none of the nurses, anyone who knew him, wanted anything to do with him, he decided to go to a dating service. Despite his ups and downs, Daryl still held on to the hope he'd eventually find his soulmate one day, even if it seemed like an unlikely prospect at 54 years old. So he took a chance on love and signed up with the dating service, hoping for the best. And it wasn't long before he was matched with someone, a petite 44-year-old blonde, Dante Britton. Before meeting Daryl, Dante had run a daycare center, showcasing her natural ability as a nurturer. More than that, Dante was a woman of culture, having traveled extensively and even holding a liberal arts degree from UCLA. From their very first date, there was an undeniable chemistry as if there was a magnetic pull drawing them together. Having been married twice before, Dante was finally ready to get it right this time. For Daryl, there was no doubt about it. Dante was a keeper. In fact, Daryl was so absolutely enamored with his stunning new partner, he made no secret of it to anyone who cared to notice. No expense was too great for his beloved Dante, and he showered her with gifts pampered her with luxurious vacations, exquisite jewelry, fur coats, and even bought her a brand new Lexus. Their relationship was moving at lightning speed, and within months of meeting, Daryl popped the question with a ring worth $5,000. Soon after, the couple were married and moved into an opulent home in Ohio's prestigious Sims Township. However, not everyone was as taken with Dante as Daryl was, namely his daughter Deborah, who remained skeptical of her new stepmother's true intentions. Deborah never liked Dante. Deborah had a very strong instinct that this Dante was a bad apple, but you know she couldn't convince her father of that. She couldn't uh, sway her father in any way because, again, her father's this prominent surgeon. He knows it all, you know. He's better than everybody else. And certainly his daughter's not going to tell him what to do. As time passed, Deborah couldn't seem to shake the sense of unease she felt about Dante. The woman's air of superiority and high-handed requests had started getting under her skin, annoyed by her relentless need to be in the spotlight. 
Deborah's unease was only further compounded by the sickening feeling that Dante was only interested in her father's money. To make matters worse, Deborah also began to notice Dante slowly but surely attempting to drive a wedge between her father and her and the rest of his children. This became painfully clear in the lead up to Deborah's wedding. She hoped her father would help make her dream wedding a reality with his financial support. However, Dante seemed to have other plans in mind. As any young woman would expect, especially back then, your family, your dad paid for the wedding. And she went now to the house to speak to her father and to Dante about her plans she had for the wedding. Ultimately, it was going to cost around $50,000, which in 1995, it was gonna be a lavish wedding. And uh, Dante immediately said, we can't afford that. Who do you think you are? You know, the Queen of England? Do you think you're royalty? That started a fight that never healed. Ultimately, Dante gave Daryl an ultimatum saying that if Daryl paid for this wedding, he was going to be sorry. Daryl stood up to her. He was going to pay for that wedding. And it, it was then that the facade of Dante started to crack, not to Daryl, but to Deborah, because Deborah Sutorius could see and Dante was taunting her with how she could control this man. Deborah's suspicions about Dante's financial motives were now coupled with a more ominous realization that Dante was fixated on not only controlling Daryl's wallet, but Daryl himself. The extent of her manipulation was becoming clearer by the day, and it was obvious she was willing to go to great lengths to get whatever she wanted. To make matters worse, it appeared Dante wasn't phased that Deborah caught her on her manipulative ways. In fact, she seemed to revel in it, as if it were some sort of twisted game. There was one point where, in front of Deborah, when Deborah was at the house, Dante immediately said, you'll see how I have your father wrapped around my finger. And she picked up the phone and paged Daryl and said she needed him to come home immediately. She had a problem, she had an emergency. And there was Daryl Sartorius, 10 minutes later, at the door, her lapdog, and Dante's, you know, smiling at Deborah, saying basically, you know, see, I control him now, and I control the money, and I will control what you will do. In a stunning turn of events, Daryl took a stand against Dante and decided to fully fund his daughter's dream wedding, something Dante couldn't tolerate. And just like that, the once inseparable couple found themselves at each other's throats their fiery arguments escalating to the point where they slept in separate bedrooms. Dante confided to friends that Daryl had become verbally abusive and exhibited threatening behavior towards her over trivial matters, and fearing for her own safety, considered arming herself with a gun. But despite the turmoil, Dante appeared steadfast in her determination to save her marriage. She believed Daryl's recent display of irritability and lack of personal hygiene was a sign of depression. After convincing him to speak with a psychiatrist, Daryl confided that he felt an intense pressure to keep everyone happy and felt a deepening sense of regret over his previous divorce. On top of that, he was drowning in debt from all the legal fees from his divorce 
and his relationship between him and his children had become strained. To stabilize his mood, Dr. Sartorius began taking antidepressants, but his behavior only turned more erratic, now paranoid that his wife was going to kill him. Soon Dr. Sartorius started locking himself in his bedroom at night and began wearing a bulletproof vest around the house, then to work as well. Everyone around him was concerned about Daryl's troubling behavior. They knew he'd been struggling internally for a long time, but this was taking things to a whole new level. It's a common belief that surgeons live a life of luxury, but what people often overlook is the enormous pressure and stress that also comes with the job. Long irregular work hours and the constant pressure to make life or death decisions, often sacrificing personal time for professional duties. The kind of negative spill-off that makes this profession difficult to comprehend. So on the night of February 18th, 1996, although extremely out of the ordinary, it might have been understandable why Daryl suddenly couldn't be reached. Maybe the stress of it all had finally gotten to him. But when hospital staff still couldn't reach Dr. Satorius the next morning, they feared the worst and decided to contact emergency services. Police arrive at their house. Dante answers the door and very surprised to see them. And where's Daryl? Oh, I don't know. He went off for the weekend and he was, I don't know where he is. And she was happy to let them go look through the house. They look through the house, and the first thing they do is look in the garage. They're in the garage trying to check to see if the car is warm, what's going on there. And while they're there, she discovers Daryl in the basement. They hear this shrill scream from her. Immediately, police rush to the basement, where they were met with the overpowering stench of death. There on the couch lay the doctor, covered in his own blood, a single gunshot wound to his head and a revolver laying on the floor next to him. It looked like Dr. Satorius had taken his own life. Given his recent behavior, it came as no surprise when it was announced the doctor had lost his battle to depression. It seemed like a clear-cut case of suicide. But as investigators combed through the evidence, they began uncovering details that would leave them with more questions. Meanwhile, Dante was left to grieve alone in their empty home. What she had no way of knowing was that leading up to his death, her late husband had been digging into her past, unearthing some disturbing stories that would leave him fearing for his life. Could it be that Dr. Satorius's paranoia wasn't the result of stress-induced delusions, but actually grounded in truth? Only time and further investigation would reveal the answer. Dante Satorius, once known as Della Hall, came from Cincinnati, Ohio, where her mother Olga and stepfather Jean Mello raised her and her three younger siblings after her biological father had passed away from cancer. As a child, Dante may have appeared to be an ordinary little girl, but signs of a sadistic nature began to emerge as early as kindergarten. Dante mistreated animals, threatened once to smother her baby sister, and even plotted to kill her mother, holding a pair of scissors to her throat as she slept. 
When she was young, Dante's blonde curls and charming smile could disguise what was hidden beneath. But things quickly changed when she hit puberty. Acne soon covered her face, and her once golden locks turned brown, leaving her feeling awkward and unattractive, causing her self-esteem to plummet. Soon Dante started failing classes, neglecting her hygiene and appearance, and refused to do household chores. In high school, Dante's life took a dramatic turn when she dropped out after becoming pregnant with a boy named Joe. When the young couple decided to keep the baby and get married, things only got worse. Dante refused to take care of their home or their daughter, leaving both in a constant state of neglect. Eventually, Joe filed for divorce, and after a bitter battle, Dante won custody of their daughter. Although Dante remarried, it too was a relationship that wouldn't last long. After her husband discovered, she was having an affair with a man named Sid, a man with a severe drug addiction. After moving in with Sid, Dante signed away her parental rights and gradually disappeared from her daughter's life altogether, starting a new chapter, far from the life she once knew. Sid was known for his laid-back demeanor, the kind of person who could shrug off just about anything. But every so often, Dante could get under his skin, especially with her relentless accusations of infidelity, fueling heated arguments that plagued their relationship. Dante's emotions took a dangerous dark turn on more than one occasion, leading her to attempt to take Sid's life. The first time was in the dead of night, while he was sleeping. She took a cigarette, lit it, and there was a kerosene lamp that she brought over for a romantic evening. The man woke up to a burning bed. It was a shocking awakening for Sid as he found himself engulfed in flames, with Dante nowhere in sight. Thankfully, Sid survived with only minor injuries, but the incident had opened his eyes to the very real danger he was in. He knew he had to get out of the relationship before it was too late. When he confronted Dante about the fire, she just laughed it off, calling him crazy. But Sid knew the truth. He wasn't imagining things. He knew Dante had tried to kill him and broke up with her. Despite their breakup, Dante's obsession with him only grew stronger, with Sid coming home twice to discover his home ransacked and robbed. His whole house was not only trashed, but TVs kicked in, furniture all turned over. Fish tank that he had crashed in with fish dead all over the floor. Just literally, she took everything he had and destroyed it, including all his clothes. This is who Dante was. Despite Dante's alarming behavior, Sid found himself drawn back to her. He believed her violent tendencies were the result of her troubled past, that had left her with an intense craving for the kind of love and affection she never received from her mother. You know, Dante always claimed that the mother was a horrible woman who abused her. She put her hands in boiling water. This is why Dante couldn't cook. You know, she couldn't go near a stove or any kind of pot or pan because she had this horrible memory of this PTSD over having her hands put in boiling water by her awful mother, Olga. So she 
constantly trashed the family to any man she was with, including Daryl. Perhaps Sid thought he could be the one to finally give Dante the love and security she so desperately needed. When Sid got a new apartment, Dante moved in with him, but things didn't change for the better. One day, Sid came across one of Dante's boxes of things, and it contained something alarming. Inside were many of the items Sid had reported stolen from his apartment, and after doing the math, Sid demanded Dante to pack up and leave. That's when she attacked him with a knife. After wrestling the weapon away from her, Dante made a shocking move and called 911, but not to turn herself in. Instead, she accused Sid of rape. When police arrived, they quickly realized Dante's accusations were unfounded and baseless, but Sid's troubles were far from over. In a twist of fate, he was arrested and sentenced to jail time for a drug-related offense. He believed Dante had set him up for. In the meantime, this is when Dante reinvented herself, changing her name from Della to Dante, and was living a life of luxury, frequenting singles bars and cruising the high seas in search of wealthy suitors. Eventually, Dante met a man named Brian, a successful contractor who she moved in with. Although things seemed to be going well in the beginning, just like her previous relationships, it didn't take long before Dante's old patterns of jealousy and control began to crop up again. Frustrated and fed up with her antics, Brian finally told her to hit the road, but Dante wasn't quite done with him yet and asked to meet up with him. Immediately, Brian noticed a distinct smell of smoke on her, like she'd been sitting by a campfire. It wasn't until after their meeting, when he returned home, that Brian found an unexpected surprise. His house had been burnt to the ground. Although Dante denied any involvement, Brian's suspicions began to mount. She actually then had the man convinced that she would help him, that, you know, she brought him a little toiletry kit with a toothpaste and a toothbrush and a comb because the whole house had been burned to cinders. There was nothing salvageable. And the guy actually kind of took her back for a minute. And it wasn't until he took her back that she wanted to let him know that really she did burn the house down. Now, she didn't say it right out, but she, she found a way to indicate it. And this is who she was. As you might have expected, Brian and Dante broke up again, but not without Dante attempting to regain control by pretending to be pregnant with his child. But by now, Brian was able to see through her scheming ways and didn't fall for it. Over the next few weeks, Dante began blowing up his phone, threatening his life. But Brian wasn't going to be so easily manipulated again, and he decided to record their ominous conversations. After playing it back to Dante, he was finally able to put an end to her harassment once and for all. And so Dante moved on to her next conquest, Grant Bassett, a man with a sizable bank account who could shower her with lavish gifts and luxurious experiences. When they first met, Grant was making decent money, enough at least to pamper her the way she felt she deserved. So of course, Dante stuck around. In fact, 
When Grant was promoted and moved to Texas, Dante moved right along with him. And on March 13, 1989, at the age of 38, Dante and Grant were married. Once they're together and they're married, she's trapped him. She had him believing that she was pregnant and then she had a miscarriage. So now, once she's got him in her clutches, she's angry, he's no good anymore, he's useless, he's a bum, he doesn't make enough money, she wants things he can't afford and she's unhappy. And at some point, he's sleeping on the couch because he's been completely dismantled by her. And in the middle of the night, he feels her presence and she's standing over him, not saying a word. And he's watching this shadow of her in the dark and she leaves. And after she leaves, he realizes he puts his hand down. There's a knife that's wrapped in a newspaper that was that day's newspaper at the side of his bed. And he later looks and sees that there was also a butcher knife behind the console that she was leaning against. So she was ready to attack him with a knife. She was pondering it, clearly. Not, not with one knife, but two knives. So, and then she evolved into using the guns. Little did Grant realize hitting rock bottom financially would turn out to be a blessing in disguise, as it meant Dante no longer saw any value in him and swiftly moved on to her next victim. This time, however, things turned even darker as Dante was charged by police after threatening her new partner with a gun. Despite facing legal consequences, Dante managed to slip through the justice system with nothing more than a mere slap on the wrist. But Dante's thirst for control and manipulation was far from over. Her next target was David Britton, a man who had no intention of marrying her. However, when Dante claimed to be pregnant again, she made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Marry her and she'd have an abortion refuse and pay child support for the next 18 years. So David gave in and they tied the knot on Valentine's Day in 1992. And as you might have guessed, again, Dante was never pregnant. She was so good at the manipulation of people that no matter what she did, whether it was knives, whether it was guns, whether it was burning things down, they would allow her back into their lives. And that is something that I find to be absolutely out of this world. I mean, you're threatening a man with guns, you're burning someone's house down, and they actually let you back in their life? How does this happen? Two years into their marriage, David finally reached his breaking point when Dante threatened him with a gun while he was packing up his things, ready to leave for good. Fortunately for him, he knew he'd already hidden all the bullets safely away from the gun, something he'd done after the first time she pointed a gun at him during one of their fights over the years. After finally managing to rid himself of Dante, she quickly found herself another unsuspecting victim to latch on to. This time, she turned to a dating service, looking for someone who could provide her with the lifestyle she craved without having to lift a finger. And it wasn't long before she met her next mark, a well-respected surgeon named Dr. Daryl Sartorius. With his successful career and substantial wealth, he seemed like the perfect fit. Little did he realize 
she was about to turn his life upside down. Dante Britton had put in a, uh, her own profile a video, and he liked what he saw. They were matched up, and uh, there you had it. He fell in love. He was head over heels for this diminutive, beautiful little woman who was age 44, perfectly appropriate for him, he thought. In order to snare Daryl and trick him into falling in love with her, Dante needed to be less than forthcoming about her history with men. So she told him she'd only been married twice, once at 19 and her last marriage to David, leaving out the long string of abusive marriages and relationships that occurred in between. Dante was a chameleon. She could play the part of anyone that she felt she needed to be. And she learned that over time. But like any pathological killer, she believed her own lies. And because she believed her own lies, she could pull it off. So when she met Daryl, she had explained that she was a graduate of UCLA, which was a lie. She was schooled in the arts, which she had done enough studying of certain artists to appear to be knowledgeable in the arts. And most men are not concerned with that. So she was able to pull things off with him. Yes, she looked good in a bikini. She was diminutive. But the big thing she did was stroke egos because that can get you about just anything you want. Oh, you can help me move a couch? Oh, that's wonderful. You're such a strong man. And that's kind of how she talked, you know, to everybody, not just to Daryl, but to all her husbands. And, uh, she was able to win him over with uh, the sense that, you know, she had this horrible childhood, she was abused, her family was no good. So this is how she presented herself, the damsel in distress, and Daryl loved that. Dante also sensed she'd be more attractive to Daryl if he saw her as a compassionate motherly type. She told him about her adult daughter, the one she had as a teenager, the child she'd basically abandoned. Suddenly she was concerned about her daughter because she wanted to appear like this wonderful mother. Somebody who she completely ignored her whole life. She had nothing to do with her whole life. Suddenly would Daryl buy her daughter Sean this or that? Dante had a knack for ensnaring her victims in her web of deceit and Dr. Daryl Sartorius was no exception. He was completely infatuated with her. His feelings so intense that he couldn't see through her manipulation. But the blinders finally began sliding off when Dante started throwing fits over him spending too much money on his daughter Deborah's wedding. Once Deborah came over and announced her engagement and they started to talk about a fancy wedding, that is when Dante went off the hook. She was out of her mind that her husband would be spending this money on his daughter and that they couldn't afford it, and that his money was her money, and that this was not going to happen, that if this happened, there would be consequences. And this is when Daryl and his daughter realized that she's not a good person, she's a monster, and all she cares about is herself, and uh, she will do anything to keep his money and keep him also away from his daughter. She's a possessive, jealous woman, so she would have been jealous of Deborah. She was jealous of anything and anyone that moved with every husband. So um, this just exacerbated the situation once Daryl stood up for his daughter and said, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm throwing her a beautiful wedding. Oh, that was just not good for her. 
Following the fallout from Deborah's wedding, Daryl and Dante's relationship hit its first major roadblock. It was then Daryl began seeing Dante's true colors, and unfortunately for him, they weren't pretty. Dante had resorted to her usual tricks, threatening Daryl's life and even bragging about burning down her ex-boyfriend's house. The threats were enough to convince Daryl to talk to his lawyer about divorce paperwork in early January 1996. When Dante threatened him, saying that she would kill him, saying that she'd done things before, Daryl was truly afraid because he realized that this woman was capable of something dangerous, very dangerous. She was already sleeping in her own bedroom upstairs, she, what she called her princess room. He was sleeping on the master floor bedroom downstairs and he was literally putting a chair behind the door because he was finding out more and more what her background was. With each passing day, Daryl became increasingly concerned about his new wife's behavior, so he started doing his own detective work, digging into Dante's past to uncover the truth. That's when he found out her real name, Della Hall. He then took it upon himself to call the only person in the world who knew his wife best, her mother. Well, now, once Daryl realizes she has a gun and realizes that her threats could be real, he gets a hold of Olga Mello, who then proceeds to tell him a couple things. At first, she says, oh, no, she would never do that. She wouldn't, uh, you know, harm you. I don't think she's a bad person. She's a bad seed. But, you know, she's, I don't think she's capable of something like that. In a stunning revelation, Olga disclosed even more damning information to Daryl. Not only had Dante been married multiple times, but she also never attended UCLA as she claimed. Olga also revealed Dante's chilling history of physically abusing and attempting to murder her previous partners. It was a bombshell revelation that left Daryl reeling in shock and disbelief. He just couldn't ignore the nagging feeling anymore that he'd been duped by a woman he thought he'd fallen in love with. That's when he started conducting his own investigation, attempting to uncover more information about her past relationships. Once Daryl started calling around, speaking to, to other family members, but also, more importantly, speaking to some of the ex-husbands, one in particular who warned him that she would use the gun, that there was actually one instance of her being arrested for brandishing a firearm against a boyfriend, not a husband or a common-law husband, and that this man actually took her to court and filed, he wanted to, he filed terroristic threatening charges. They were reduced, but there was, there was a history and there was, there it was in black and white that Daryl could go look up and see that she had brandished a gun. She had threatened a man that she was going to kill him. And the man confirmed that when, when he talked to the man, the man said, I'm sorry for you. I feel sorry for you that you're married to this thing because she is scary and really scary. So now Daryl finds all this out and things turn for the worst. January 22nd, 1996 was a day that Dr. Daryl Sartorius would never forget. It was the day he stumbled upon a shocking discovery that made him finally realize just how much danger he was in. The evidence was there, staring him right in the face, and there was no room for doubt. 
that his life was truly at risk. Dante went out and got herself a gun. Daryl found out about it because she was threatening him with the gun. He did a background check, found out, yeah, she has it. So he found it. He broke into her room, her princess room, with great trepidation, found it, and turned it into the police. But he realizes now that she's got a gun. She's going to do something. And she had loads of ammunition, too. Once he was talking about divorce, at that point now, he's fearful for his life. She continues to threaten him. He not only locks himself behind the door in his master bedroom, but he starts going to the hospital performing surgery in a bulletproof vest, which I know sounds really overboard, but Dante would appear at the hospital. Dante was always on his tail. He just didn't feel safe. I spoke to one of his colleagues who could not believe that this six foot three gigantic man who was towering over everyone else in every way was literally wearing a bulletproof vest in the hospital. It seems so incongruous, but this is how afraid Daryl was. Daryl was now in a desperate race against time to escape his dangerous wife. But every day, Dante would make it clear that she not only had the power to end his life, but also to ruin it completely. This is a little diminutive woman who knew how to use knives, guns, threats, threatening to turn Daryl into the IRS, to destroy his career as a doctor, to go to his colleagues and, and tell them about him being impotent. I mean, it, there was nothing that she wouldn't do to destroy a man she was with. When she found out that Daryl was impotent, what she did was really grotesque in my opinion, because what she did, she pretended like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. But then he had some kind of pump, you know, to solve his ED. And what she did is she wanted him to show her all the different stages of how he did this, which just made him all the more self-conscious, all the more embarrassed. And she knew that, but she tried to play it off like, I just want to help you. I'm just curious how this is happening. How does this work? And, you know, I mean, how devilish is that? How, how dare she do this to this man who's done nothing but take care of her, fawn over her, and try to please her? No, no, no. She wanted to degrade him. And what better way to do that than by attacking his sexuality and then later threatening to go tell everyone else about it? Daryl's determination to divorce Dante only fueled her desire to hold on to him even tighter. She'd always been the one to play dirty and she wasn't about to lose this game without a fight. As the second week of February approached and Daryl planned to file for divorce, Dante was already plotting her next move. By this point, Daryl knew all too well that his wife was a master manipulator, and he couldn't let his guard down, even for a moment. She has already set up with people, neighbors and friends, that Daryl is suicidal, She's sent him to a psychiatrist. They've gone together and then separately he's at a psychiatrist admitting that he's suicidal. In fact, he had some suicidal thoughts during his first marriage with Janet. So there was a follow through here. And Dante was good at pressing that button, making him depressed, making him feel suicidal because he's living with this monster. As a seasoned veteran at divorcing wealthy men and collecting their alimony payments, 
Dante was quite adept at calculating the potential financial gains from her actions, and after careful consideration realized that a divorce from Daryl would only yield her a monthly allowance of $1,000 to $2,000. However, if Daryl were to meet an untimely demise, well then, Dante would stand to inherit nearly a million dollars. For her, the choice was obvious. So at the end, Daryl was super frightened of his wife. And he was filing for divorce, but he was also filing for a restraining order to keep her away from him. He was locked in that master bedroom when he got home from work. He just ate in the master bedroom. He just stayed away from her. But in the days before he was killed, suddenly she became this lovely woman again. She became the nice wife and sweet and cooing and Daryl let his guard down. So by doing that, he decided, oh, I'm gonna go down into my man cave and watch some TV down there. Everything's good, it's okay. He's still getting a divorce, but Dante seems to be okay with it. And when he let his guard down, she plotted his murder. So she, she obtained a gun and um, then she figured out, okay, I know I'm gonna do this. She shot him once before he could even realize she was there in the basement. And then once he was down on the couch, she now took his hand and wrapped it in the gun so that it looked like he pulled the trigger. Dante had timed murdering her husband to coincide with the upcoming weekend, which meant it would be days before anyone noticed him missing. There were three days that passed where Daryl was not seen. Where was Daryl? He was in the basement, dead. Where was Dante? She was floating around the house with the door closed of the basement. When Daryl's body was first discovered, it seemed like a tragic suicide. But as the investigation continued, suspicions began to swirl around Dante Satorius when police received a startling tip from an unexpected source. Dante's own mother, Olga, insisting that her daughter was responsible for Daryl's death. When the results of the forensic testing came in, it was confirmed that the surgeon's death was in fact a homicide. So while she was claiming it's suicide, ultimately the autopsy revealed that the man would have had to take a gun and put it to the back of his head and shot himself that way. And the trajectory just didn't make sense. Initially, the wound on the side of Daryl's head suggested possible suicide. However, the autopsy revealed that he'd been shot from behind, leaving no doubt of foul play. Further investigation revealed that the 38 caliber pistol used to kill Daryl was registered under Dante's name, a gun she'd purchased the day before her husband's death and had even gone target practicing with. Subsequently, Dante Satorius was arrested and charged with the murder of her husband. During Dante's trial, several of her previous partners testified about the torment she put them through. For years, she'd used her beauty and charm to manipulate men, siphoning them of their wealth until she finally met her match. The verdict was finally in. After years of evading accountability for her actions, Dante was sentenced to 23 years to life in prison. 
but Dante continued to maintain her innocence in Daryl's murder. So I went to see Della in jail, and she came to that window, that plexiglass window, and was on one side of the phone, and I was on the other. And she absolutely denied that she had anything to do with her husband's death, that Daryl killed himself, that he was depressed, that everything her defense said was true. She would never kill her husband. She loved her husband. And then she started to point to this metal uh, wall that's next to her where you could barely make out an impression of her image. And she pointed to it. She said, look at me. I have no makeup in here. I have no one doing my hair. I have nothing. I am here and I should be wearing, I should be out there in my house wearing my mink coat and in my all my designer clothes. This is what she actually said to me. I'm looking at this lady like, honey, you just got convicted of murder. What planet are you on? Dante Sartorius, the woman who'd caused so much pain and destruction to those around her, ultimately died in prison from natural causes at 60 years old. But the damage she'd done to those whose lives she'd touched remained. Her reign of terror, fueled by her cunning ways, manipulation, and greed, ended in tragedy when she took the life of a devoted father and brilliant surgeon who'd committed his life to saving others. This is more of a story of a man-hater and a con woman. Della Dante, with five different last names, was able to con and threaten every man she encountered. She would start off with this diminutive sensibility of the damsel in distress. She would have all the right things to say and praise these men and be madly in love and be so thrilled to have any little thing they gave her, any little restaurant they took her. And then as soon as she had them in her grasp, which was also usually by claiming that she was pregnant and would get married, everything changed. And suddenly she's, a, she's the monster. Slowly but surely, she eats away at their ego. She eats away at their sense of self. She eats away at what she needs out of the relationship. And she moves away every other which way, and it's just taking to the point that they want to leave, and when they do want to leave, what does she do? That's when she starts to threaten murder. As the trial drew to a close, the prosecutor compared Dante to a black widow, a notorious spider that devours their male partners after mating with the judge likening her to a lionfish, a creature that lures its prey by its vibrant markings before delivering a deadly strike with its venomous spines. A grim reminder of how appearances can be deceiving. With her charm and good looks, Dante was able to lure in unsuspecting victims. But just like the venomous spines of a lionfish, Dante's true nature eventually revealed itself in a trail of destruction and heartbreak. I want to give a huge thank you to Aphrodite Jones for helping us with this episode. As a huge true crime fan, it was an absolute bucket list moment for me to work with her. We've been following her work for years, 
And once again, here's Aphrodite to tell you how she got into true crime and the work she's done. My name is Aphrodite Jones, and I have been in the true crime field for 30 years, which is amazing to me because it seems like yesterday sometimes. Um, back in the day when I was working in true crime, people used to ask me, why do you like all this murder and horrible stuff? And I would say the same thing I say today, which is I don't like it. Um, even though it's become popular, quote unquote, now, I don't like it at all. I never planned to be in true crime. It was never something I wanted to do. Um, I used to do a celebrity interview column about cable television. That's the world I wanted to be in. But it became a calling for me because a young woman was murdered by an FBI agent in Kentucky. When I lived there, I was a professor there for a short period of time. And that woman, Susan Daniel Smith, her death was going unnoticed by the media. And what I couldn't believe was that the FBI agent who killed her copped a manslaughter plea. In other words, pled guilty to killing his informant because she'd gotten pregnant and was threatening to expose him to his wife. And nobody covered it in the news. I'm sitting there going, where's CNN? Where's, where's anybody? How do, we're in Eastern Kentucky, Appalachia, but how does this happen? So ultimately I wound up writing a book about it, dedicating it to her. It became a TV movie called Betrayed by Love with Patricia Arquette and Stephen Weber. Um, and from there I wound up writing my second true crime book, Cruel Sacrifice, which became a New York Times bestseller. And at that point I was kind of stuck in the genre. And for years I would try to get out of it, but it seemed like each book I wrote became more successful, more movies, etc. And um, here I am. It's a calling. You know, I have a television series, True Crime with Aphrodite Jones, that aired for six seasons on the ID channel. And it aired prior to the people, people really getting a hold of ID. So I would ask people to go into Amazon Prime or Netflix, wherever, and look for the series on streaming because in that series, I covered big cases, not just small cases. So for example, I covered the O.J. Simpson case. I met O.J. Simpson. People don't know that about me. Um, I covered the Casey Anthony uh, case. I met the Anthonys and met with them. You know, um, I covered the Anna Nicole Smith case. I met with uh, the judge in that case, the boyfriend, Larry, all of these characters. I went to the Bahamas. I mean, very detailed and involved episodes that I did on every of the 64 episodes I did, including um, episodes on the eight books that I've written. So um, I would encourage and hope that people would go back in time and take a look at some of that because um, I unravel things about, let's say, O.J. Simpson that no one has ever seen, um, footage that no one has ever seen, footage of Phil Spector that no one has ever seen and ever can get their hands on again. Um, things that I was able to do, um, which I look back on now and think, wow, what a miracle. If you don't know my work, if you're interested, I would love it if you could just take a look at some of the bigger stories I did or even some of the smaller stories I did because for whatever reason, I have a knack of getting materials and interviews that maybe others have never gotten. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs> 